hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm so glad to have you here. Today on the show, I have brought back a crowd favorite, my husband, Levi Hildebrand. Levi and I talk about our experience of using fertility awareness method over the past eight months and the impact that not being on birth control has had on our sex life. We also do a bit of a deep dive on masculinity and how it is just now that Levi feels like he is choosing what that means for himself. But first, today in sex. Levi and I are about to head out on a road trip for a year and live out of our Prius. And really the main question that people have had for us is, how are you going to have sex? Now, obviously that is none of their business, but it is a question that we have been asking ourselves. But more than how we maneuver ourselves in the back of our car or discussing the pros and cons of sex on the beach, what we've really been contemplating lately is how to not get pregnant while we're on this trip. Now, as we discussed in our interview today, it has been eight months since I removed my IUD, and we have been on quite the journey to track my cycle and to figure out our new sexual repertoire. We do want to have kids eventually, but living out this dream of being totally free and able to go wherever we want over the next year is a really big priority before we settle down with some kiddos. Now, if you want to know more about Fertility Awareness Method, you can check out my interview with Natalie Dauday on the episode titled, Is This the Future of Birth Control? Also, if you want to know a bit more about my experience with an IUD and transitioning to Fertility Awareness Method, you can check out the episode titled, Why I Took Out My IUD. And now, here is my interview with Levi. (laughs) Okay. So by popular demand, I have brought back Levi, Jacob, Hildebrand, and we are going to talk about IUDs, contraception, and generally what the last, I guess it's been over six months, it's been almost eight months of us. Really? Yeah, because I took it, I took out my IUD in November and it's June now. Oh my God. Right? I can't believe, honestly, our friend group did not think that we were going to last this long. They thought that we were going to be pregnant within like a matter of weeks. Well, yeah, they thought I was going to be pregnant by Christmas. What does that say about, I mean, us? A, does that mean that we like have sex a lot? And I'm also like, I'm a pretty decent sexual health educator. I know how to avoid pregnancy. It would be hilarious if you, the sex educator, pulled the goalie and then somehow accidentally ended up pregnant. Yeah, being like, it happens to everyone. Uh, so people who had listened to the final episode of season two, I talked about taking out my IUD. I had shifted, it had moved. Um, it was almost six years since I had had it in. Um, and you and I do want to have kids. We know that we want to have kids, but not imminently. Like, and so it was definitely sooner. Uh, than expected. So when I first came home from that doctor's appointment, because when I left that morning in November, I was like, oh, like, I'm just going to go see. I think it's been moved and, you know, I may get it removed. When I came home and told you that I did get it taken out, what was your like gut reaction? First thought? Oh, I was kind of, I, I mean, I guess I was kind of annoyed initially. Like that was my gut reaction just because like, it feels like a two person decision like as a couple you you sort of decide if contraception is a thing that you're going to do and how you're going to do it and then I mean I guess I kind of knew that it might happen but you know it's one of those hypotheticals that okay well if 
it needs to come out, then there's not really anything we can do. But yeah, it, it was like, oh, cool. So our life has just changed and there wasn't really anything I could do about it. Right. So you were disappointed by that. Oh, disappointed isn't the right word. You felt kind of maybe cheated out of that decision. Yeah, maybe. I, I, but it it's just like less fun to have to think about that all the time. And <laughs> it also creates tension where right. it isn't necessary. Like we we already spend, you know, so much of our lives trying to sort of negotiate when intimacy is going to happen and, you know, how our professional lives mix with our personal lives and all those other elements. Mm -hmm. And then I just knew that as soon as we did this, it was going to be more complicated. Right. And was I wrong? No, you're not wrong. <laughs> I think it was one of those things where, like, I, I hear you, right, in that decision-making thing. And when, uh, you know, the doctor looked at it, it was very affirming to, like, me, you know, this is my second IUD, I know what it's supposed to feel like, and I knew that it had shifted, that something was wrong. But again, I'm not a medical doctor, so I wasn't going to tell the doctor, like, hey, this is for sure the deal. Um, but when he looked at it and was like, do you want me to take it out? I was like, yeah, like, I want you to take it out. And for him to be like, yeah, like, it was in the wrong place, the arms were like half engaged, and it was just deeply uncomfortable. In that moment, I wasn't thinking about you. I didn't. I didn't really think about you when, right. when I said, yeah, take it out. No, I, I, I'm not saying that it's the wrong choice. I, I don't blame mm -hmm. you for the outcome. But it just, you know, that that's what it was. That's the reality of the situation. Yeah. Well, it impacts both of us, right? As you said, yeah. like as people who our lives, I mean, obviously as husband and wife, but as co-owners of a business, as everything else, like our lives are so enmeshed that when you make an important decision like that, you want to have that conversation. So. How are you feeling as we're about to embark on this trip for a year in terms of our contraception, intimacy? We yeah. have a lot of questions about how we're going to even have sex in the car. Yeah, I, I think we've combined like two of the hardest things that we're probably going to go through as uh, <laughs> unchildrened people. Um, you know, right. no contraception and a long-term trip with just the two of us in a confined space for an extended <laughs> period of time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think that we've learned a lot already in the eight months since you had the IUD removed about like what a cycle actually looks like and how mm -hmm. that cycle impacts us as a household. Mm -hmm. And it, it didn't before. We didn't have any of that sort of rhythm or, or like mm -hmm. uh, ebb and flow you know, pun intended. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and now we sort of exist by this sort of chart of your body in, in ways that we didn't before. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's, that's changed a lot. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because you still ovulate when you're on the IUD, but you're just, everything feels a bit muted. And then mm -hmm. for you and I to be like, okay, like, what are my hormones? How am I feeling in this moment. And it, the awful thing about it is like when I'm ovulating, that's when I'm the most interested in sex. Yeah. And it's the most terrifying. So, you know, when I'm like, you know, like coming on to you, you're like, Ugh. no, I, hell no. <laughs> I can see it in your eyes. Like when you look at me, I'm like, no, no, sit down, sit down, down. We girl. are not doing this right now. We're not doing it for at least two days. <laughs> and that's like really kind of a shame, you know, like it, it, 
biology is working against you at every step of the way. Like, mm. and you don't have a problem with arousal. You don't have issues with intimacy in general. Like, imagine if the one time in a two week or a three week period, the moment you feel actually aroused and ready to have sex or something, you can't without wearing condoms or doing a certain amount of preparation ahead of time yeah. to do that safely. Like it's, it's, it's very difficult. And I understand why they don't recommend fertility awareness method as like a really serious way of preventing having an accidental child, uh, because it takes so much work. Like if you work mm -hmm. a full-time job and you have other responsibilities and you're involved in your community, charting your cycle and understanding where you're at and like whether or not this is the time of the month you're definitely going to get pregnant like that's a lot of work well and that's the thing like I've, I've talked to fertility awareness method folks like on this podcast and follow different people on instagram and i just do always chafe against the you know this is a great way that's hormone free which i've been like you know creating demons out of hormones much more complicated than that mm. and it's like, I would, yeah, any, like a teenager, people in their 20s, unless they like actually are prepared to deal with the fact that like, okay, if I choose this method, there's a much higher likelihood of an unintended pregnancy. Right. Thankfully, we live in a country where we can actually deal with that in a way that works for our bodies. Obviously not the case in lots of other places. Mm. But yeah, like I just, I would not recommend it. Like me as a sexual educator, you and I as people who communicate effectively like, I'm not even, you know, I have to take my temperature every day. I got to track it in this thing. And like, no, it's an incredible amount it. of work. Does it educate you in the ways that your body operates? It, yes, it's I think mm. it's a very valuable tool if people want to reconnect with themselves and understand mm. themselves at a much deeper level. Because I think mm. for a lot of people, the issues of their body in general are sort of ignored until they become problematic. So, you know, the lump on your back is only really an issue until it starts to hurt, you know, and and I think not as a person who has a, a cycle like this, but I would imagine your period can feel much the same. It's like, I'm just living my life and then, oh my God, now I have my period. And yeah. then you deal with the period and then it's over and it's like, okay, great. Now I can go back to my normal life. And yeah. this does sort of give you a lot more understanding of like, here I am two days away from my period or here I am two days away from ovulation. And then mm -hmm. you hit that point and you're like, ah, this is, I was expecting this. And like, I don't know that that gives you a lot more power. It gives you a lot more freedom. You can mm -hmm. feel more confident about your sexual choices because I know for you and me, the couple of days to a week after ovulation for you is like, probably the most confident we feel in sex. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, you're going to get your period, so there's no chance of lingering or enthusiastic sperm, uh, you know, <laughs> coming up, up uh, the chapters later on in the book. No, there will yeah. be a natural cleanse here that can sort of guarantee us a certain amount of security. Yeah. And then the other half of the cycle, we're kind of on tiptoes and very careful about how we go about things. Yeah. I was thinking about what you're saying of being aware of that cycle. I think a lot of people, if there's like, 
you know, menstrual wellness educators or cycle awareness educators is a similar thing where you can also think about what you take on month to month, Mm -hmm. right? Like throughout your month, you're like, okay, this is about the time that I'm ovulating. I'm going to have high energy. I'm going to be excited. I'm going to be doing stuff like that. And days where you're like, okay, I'm probably like, you know, this is right before I'm going to have my period. Those are going to be my lower energy days. How do I make sure I'm not trying to taking on too much on those days? Like obviously, you have to have the luxury of being able to pick and choose those things, but at least you have an understanding of what's going on. You also have more empathy for yourself. Totally. And how has that been in terms of like, I feel like you've had a different understanding of your own hormonal cycles and like emotional cycles because we've been tracking mine. Oh yeah. I, I Well, and even just as a partner, I think this gives you a lot more ability to connect and, and understand your partner, because there's nothing like that for men. Like we don't have such a tangible, very obvious and imposing thing that indicates a cycle that we naturally do have in our hormones. And um, I know how to predict your moods now. And because, you know, I think there's a lot of people and there's stories and there's references and, you know, our social language and uh, zeitgeist about, Mm. oh, well, she must be on her period, you know, Mm. and often it's done in a negative way. But it is nice that when you are like suddenly snappy, or you're randomly crying in a grocery store, I can be like, oh, okay, 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 okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because last week, she was eye fucking me all afternoon (laughs) while I was at work. It's like, I can sort of predict and see where you're at in your rhythm. And that doesn't come without taking time to deliberately look at that. Mm -hmm. There's interesting ideas around like masculinity and femininity in that as well. Because you're right, it's a much more complex hormonal cycle for people who have uteruses. And, you know, for people who, you know, everyone has testosterone, everyone has estrogen. But, you know, typically for people who have penises, you'll have higher testosterone in the morning and throughout the day it kind of falls. So it's at the lowest by the end of the day. And then it kind of, it's a daily cycle. But I also wonder, you've often said this to me, you're like, you know, I wish I also had some sort of hormonal cycle that I was tracking in my own body because you also have days that you're higher energy days that you're feeling really productive and days you're like, I need to be like quiet and sit with myself. And I think that layers on top of how we socialize people to behave because as a woman, if I say, oh, okay, well, you know what? I'm feeling a bit low energy today. Like the other day, I just like, it was after lunch. I worked for an hour and I was like, I think I'm going to go have a nap because this is my body is telling me. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to have my period in a few days. And I can almost justify it. Yeah. Those cycles. And it's not the same for you. Yeah, you have data and you have uh, a bit of an excuse to, you know, take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's none of that for the the male population because we're supposed to not have those problems. but Or not problems. We don't have those, uh, you know, things that happen in our life. But they do. And And I've noticed that my cycle, whatever that might be, seems to be connected to yours but like could there not be like uh an eye twitch or like you know a bum knee or something that just kind of indicates where i'm at because yeah it's it's Mm -hmm. hard in life to know when you should be stopping or when you should be 
taking it easy or when you should be pushing through. Mm -hmm. Because I, I know from, you know, 30 years on earth that like, there's some days where I just kind of need to keep going. Yeah. And then I break through and there's kind of like three or four days of like, wow, okay, this is the clarity I expect for myself every day. Yeah. But you don't know that if you don't have the sort of cycle that you have. But I think also you are taught not to be as attuned to yourself yeah, as true. well, though, into your body. Yeah. But also it's kind of this idea where, like, men are steady and stable. And that's why they make strong leaders because they're always logical, whatever. And they're mm. like, oh, well, women are emotional and their cycles make sure that they're up and down and everything else. Right. And you're like, okay, if, if we change those narratives to just understand that is people – we can't expect the same things from ourselves every single day. Yeah. And when we do, that's when we start creating unhealthy habits and not actually like, that's how you get burnout. Mm -hmm. Like that's how you get all of these other things that impact, you know, when you are feeling good, being able to do the things that you want to do. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. It, it, it is funny though, that stereotype of the men being steady and it's basically the opposite for our relationship. <laughs> I feel like I'm the steady one. Yeah. And like hormones are throughout that. But you have, as you've described it, you have peaks and valleys. Tell me a bit about when you kind of came up with that visualization for your own uh, mental health. Um, I guess journaling was kind of always like my resource for self-reflection. Like I'd gone to therapy at a couple of points in my life as a kid, but like you know, the, the journal was ultimately a place where I could just sort of unload thoughts. And it just became clear after a while that I just kept talking about the same stupid thing. Like, it was just like, over and over and over again, me being like, I'm worried about this thing that I have to do. And it's stressing me out. And there's all these other things that I have to do. And how am I ever going to accomplish this goal? And then if I just flipped back a page or two, it would be the last week or two ago where I was similarly stressed about a different issue that I was sure I was never going to overcome. And so it's, you know, this sort of pattern of, of anxiety that kind of comes and goes in intensity. And I think over the years, my ability to predict it has just sort of like moderated those peaks and valleys. So they're less extreme. I'm not as high and I'm not as low and I'm kind of able to more so keep that steadiness, um, but without like the benefit of some sort of physical thing that mm. allows me to kind of recognize that. I'm also on medication that changes my body's mm. energy levels. So perhaps that has something to do with it. I don't know mm -hmm. how that would be different if, if I was, um, you know, completely free of that sort of medication. But um yeah, it's uh, it's a process that I think maybe is a little harder for, you know, people with penises to understand. Hmm. You know, what I'm kind of wondering about is, so we've talked about like mental health and hormones and like sexual health and even like your heart and those kind of things, but how we try and create these as separate categories, right? Whereas undeniably your mental health, the medication that you're on, where we're at and our dynamic impacts the sexual desires and arousals, the intimacy that we're able to have with each other. So how do you see that interplay? Like I'm, I'm thinking mm. now, like your peaks and valleys have become more 
like rolling hills. But do you think that has impacted like when you were more peaks and valleys, do you feel like you had like more passion when you were on one of those peaks and like higher desire and then really like low? Like, how are you feeling those things kind of connecting together? Yeah, that's interesting. I think I'm probably better off for the routine and and sort of practicality that I've built into my life. I I enjoy excitement, but I've I've learned that the highs that you experience without the the psychological preparation for them are rarely as enjoyable as as you you you, you know, like you can party really really hard and mm-hmm. you can have like the most fun. But if you recognize that the hangover the next day is going to be like actually unbearable, mm-hmm. it's always better to drink slightly less and have a better hangover. And, you know, right. it's a terrible <laughs> analogy for someone talking about life balance. But, you know, it is a metaphor that that is applicable to me right now. Like I would say in the last like three years, the number of really bad hangovers I've had are are quite low. Um, yeah. But I would say that I'm having fun and drinking in social settings more than I have maybe in my years previously. And right. so it's I, I think that you just develop these sort of ways of understanding yourself hmm. and your body and your needs. And then you adapt your behavior to to, to accommodate for that. And right. I think a lot of people do it in negative ways. You know, they drink more because they want to avoid their issues or, you know, they avoid social interactions because they feel insecure about something about themselves or, you know, like there's there's negative and positive accommodations that you can make. And because of the privileges that I have and the educations I've received and the supportiveness of my partner, you know, I have had a lot of luxury to address things in a in a more emotionally stable way and take the time Mm -hmm. to do it properly so that I'm able to build like a foundation that supports me in the future. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're not even quite 30 yet, but this feels like a 30 year old, like all of these things I've learned in my twenties, my peaks and valleys. Mm -hmm. I drink less. I look after myself more and feeling that grounding and almost like that enjoyment of the simplicity in life. I want to switch gears because as you were saying that I was thinking about your enjoyment and like pleasure sexually. Now that I'm not on the IUD, I was thinking about like the peaks and valleys. Like when we were younger, if there was a pregnancy scare, like that would be a really scary and like mm-hmm. almost, you know, like that'd be like, oh God, like that's a huge responsibility. Now we have to have a discussion about what that's going to look yep. like. But as I'm 30, as you're approaching 30, as we know that that is something on the horizon, but we are not yet there, has that impacted your? anxiety and mental health when we are having oh for sex. sure definitely yeah <laughs> has it, it not affected yours no it has it has affected mine i guess that the always the hard thing is is that i mean like i know that i want to have kids and i again don't want to have them now but i feel like and i can't blame this entirely on my biology but i feel like a certain part of my brain when it's you and I having sex, connecting, there's a part of my brain that kind of switches to like, this feels so good. Yeah, let's do it. Let's oh, I know. Baby. And yeah, like, I know. <laughs> that's what scares you. Yes. Yes, that is exactly what scares me. I know. You're I'm... terrifying. <laughs> it's like it's riding a bull and every now and then the bull's like, you see that bridge over there? 
I'm going to run right into that. <laughs> we were having a fun time, but at any moment, I could kill you. <laughs> kill you? Are you equating You would me kill killing you? the younger version of me by having by a child. By making you a father. Yes. Oh, dear. So... <laughs> Is that what that means? Is that what it means to become a parent? You have to kill a child within you. Yeah. Now you're like, now I have to raise That's this other what, yeah. child. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, to be clear for everyone listening, I am, I am ready for this chapter of my life. I recognize that this is something that I need to do. Um, but I, I am no, uh, idiot when it comes to <laughs> the realities of what it is to be a parent. Um, I've witnessed it pretty intimately with uh, Leah's sister and with uh, her various kids. And uh, I am I think it's going to be awesome. But I'm looking at a year of our life that we have designated for ourselves as mm-hmm. a final hurrah before we dedicate everything to a smaller version of us. And I just want to do that before we do this other thing. Because I yeah. know that if we were to have a whoopsie... It would be fine. We would raise the kid. They would be healthy and everything would be awesome. But I do know that a part of me would be like, ah, we never got to do that thing. It was just, there's one, there's that thing that we wanted to do and we never quite got there. And And I talk to parents often about this because it's something that I bring up all the time as somebody who doesn't have kids expecting them one day. And they say, oh, yeah, right before we had kids, we went on a big six-month thing in Europe. Or, like, we went and, you know, spent a whole bunch of time in Australia and worked on it. You know, like, and yeah. those stories they often look back on as, like, hugely important psychological fodder that they get to hold on to and use as, like, fuel for the less glamorous screaming in the middle yeah. of the night times. I'm imagining like you're holding this baby, this colicky baby, and you're like, oh, remember when we saw RuPaul in Las Vegas? Yeah. That was so great. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I think that it's really important to come into parenthood with as much of yourself fulfilled as you possibly can. Hmm. And I know uh, from my parents who... Uh, had me later in life, that they lived very full, rich lives before I was introduced into it. And their wisdom and insight into themselves, as well as the world around them, contributed to who I am today. And I think I'm pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I obviously think so, because I married you. But yeah, you know, and it's interesting, because I think... My parents have done an exceptional job of raising my siblings and I, but I don't think they were quite ready for us. And we know that. Mm-hmm. Like, they know they had a whoopsie when they were on. It was supposed to be a year-long trip, and it was, like, you know, halfway through. They had to come home because they were pregnant. And, like, you know, to be fair, it's one of those interesting things as well where those are the options before us, right? Like, we have the luxury of making those options, right? To mm-hmm. reach this point in our lives where if we were to have – a whoopsie say, we're like, okay, I think we're going to have the kid. But it's not to say that if someone was in the same position as us and wasn't ready, depending on where they lived, they could go have an abortion. And that would be a way to be like, you know what, I'm not ready for this thing. And obviously, that's a a big emotional decision to make. But to be at that phase where you can make those decisions, Mm -hmm. and just like brief aside, because abortion is such a hot 
topic right now. It always is. But to say all of those ideas we have around who typically gets abortions, like someone who's like 16 or is irresponsible or yet all of these other stereotypes that we have in Canada, the person who like the highest rate of people who get uh, abortions are women in their 30s who already have children and who are married. To just say right. like, understandably for their like, that's the whole thing. It's called it used to be called like family planning. It still is family planning. Yeah, You're like, of course. Okay, so we've decided we want to have two kids. Something happens. We don't have the financial means, the energy, the whatever else to bring totally. another person in this world. And I feel like that's a really responsible thing to do if yeah. you've thought deeply about that decision. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, we don't need to get into the the deeply divisive, you know, nuances of what divorce means or divorce. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's that one's sticky too, I guess. This is a lot of, yeah. These are the hot button topics. Yeah. So what are we going to talk about? Ukraine and Russia? Yeah. Like, come on. Let's label let's, them all up. Let's do it. Right. Um, no, but it, it has uh, to rewind a little bit. The, the choice to not be on birth control changes the, the enjoyment of sex in, um, yeah, that, that like understanding of what could happen, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, would you performing a uh, handstand is perhaps a intimidating feat for some people, but maybe you've done a lot of handstands and the handstands become pretty normal. But doing that same handstand on the edge of a bridge is a lot more intense, fundamentally exactly the same. You know what? It's changed. The, the context. context. <laughs> and we both pointed at each other. Who's red? Come as you are. Pointed at each other. And that and that context is is really big. I would say I don't have the numbers for this. You know, statistics have not been released yet. But uh, I think we've had less sex since you've been off birth control. Hmm. You know what? I've been tracking it on my app with my cycle. Oh. But I wasn't but tracking only it as before. Of. Right. Exactly. No, I wonder... How I would say, though, I don't feel like we've been less intimate with each other. Yeah. Right? Like, I feel like we've still had, like, deep levels of, like, physical and emotional intimacy with each other, but not necessarily sex. Yeah. And it, it does change the way that you have sex, quite mm -hmm. literally. Um, it is a very sad reality, but condoms are less enjoyable than sex without condoms and that's not a reality for everyone it's not a I'm reality saying, for it's everyone. not a reality for i know a lot it's of bad people. press i know i'm not supposed to say I know, that i know but you are allowed to have your opinion that you enjoy less with a condom well, enjoy sex less with a condom but that's that's perfectly valid was i not supposed to say that no no you can say that i think that's an it's an important point that i feel like as a sex educator if i was in like a grade seven class like i would never say that i'd no, be like no. use condoms like there's no reason to not use them but oh, and then and definitely with there are contexts where condoms are absolutely necessary oh, part of the reason why we don't wear condoms is because we are prepared to have a kid if something were to happen and that mm. risk is sort of maybe it's a high risk but you know yeah. it is a risk that we are able and willing to take because mm -hmm. the context allows for it in our the rest of our lives well and because we you know get we've been tested for stis yeah. and also i think the reason why we probably haven't like jumped onto the condom bandwagon because we did use condoms when we first got together mm -hmm. 
is that we have created a sexual repertoire in which condoms are not a part of that. Yeah, it is pretty hard to change the script. Yeah. When you've been having sex together for eight years or however long we've been having sex for, yeah, it's like, yeah. there's it's kind of routine. Like, when you put on your pants, do you put the left leg in first or the right leg? Like, it is, <laughs> you know, like... Your brain creates these pathways that allow you to reach the goal that you're aspiring for as quickly as possible. And sex is no different. And a condom, especially when you're not used to it, is sort of like a huge wrench in the plans. True. I I also think that erotically, when you change those sexual scripts, that's when things can become exciting. So that's I true, feel too. Like for me, even though the risk is higher... It's a risk that we are taking together. And again, I would never tell people that withdrawal method was the best method. Doing a pull and pray, again, <laughs> the context is key. I don't recommend this to people. And I give them the statistics on it and everything else. But for you and I, we're like, okay, that seems yeah. to be working for us. And something about that risk is, is, yeah, it is erotically, it yes. does something for me. Yeah, there, there are some... Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, actually, in some ways, putting on the condom makes it feel like more, uh, like one night standy or something, like or clinical or something. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, we're we're like the that intimacy. can be some novelty too, though, yeah. where it's like, oh, like we should definitely like use a condom. And again, if people who use condoms all the time in their long term relationships, absolutely, if that's what works for you. Oh, it'd probably be super that. weird to not. If that was if that was a part of your sexual routine and also oh. the things that make because a lot of the time, what actually particularly for like folks with uteruses, a lot of the time that what can make you feel, you know, setting the right context, your brain can really tap into, you know, the things that turn you on is by feeling safe in some way. Mm. And because as someone with the uterus, you do take on more risk. Right? Like STIs, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the time, depending on the STI, is, yeah, it is harder, you know, it's easier to get that STI as someone with a uterus. And of course, the, you know, depending on what kind of sex you're having, pregnancy might be an option. But if you have that kind of safety net, sometimes that's what elevates it for people to be like, now I don't need to worry about this, this little thing in the back of my brain being like, don't lose yourself in this moment. Don't really land in your body because you have to make sure. Especially that you don't you, get pregnant, yeah. Yeah, especially if you're doing pull-out method. Like, you're asking someone at the height of their pleasure to pull out, to stop what they are doing. Mm-hmm. And I would not do that. With someone right? you don't trust and you're not prepared to have a kid with. Exactly. Yeah, because we've messed up. Like, we, we oh. definitely have done this wrong. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, and those were very stressful times. Like yes, they, yes, they were. <laughs> and and ruined the moment, quite honestly. You know, yeah. it was like, oh, oh, God, oh, Damn it. Oh, God. Now we got to worry about this for like a week. You know, yeah. it's uh, it, it's a really real um, issue that uh, so many people face. And I think that the more that you delve into it personally and intimately with your partner, I think the better mm-hmm. that it is. Because like us going through this journey has drastically changed my awareness of what's going on in your body. Mm-hmm. And it's changed the way that we have sex and it's changed the way that we 
interrelate with other people even, you know, because, yeah. you know, socially we understand where each other are. I mean, it's a very fascinating process. I think if anybody has the opportunity to do it, um, it's, it's a great exercise. I think as people, if you are ready to have children, if you like, if you're thinking that you want to have children, it's a great way. I think for, especially with fertility awareness method, a lot of it is with the goal of having mm. a child, right? So you are tracking when you ovulate so you can have sex at those optimum times. Right. Um, and so that'll be an interesting script for us to flip again, you mm. know, next year, end of next year-ish for us to be like, okay, we're using fertility awareness method, but now the goal is to get pregnant, right? right I don't yeah. think we're going to do that switch right away. I think we're just going to have sex and just see yeah yeah i think um, i think we won't be quite as deliberate about it because you know I unless think things come up i mean the history in my family with women getting pregnant is they'll their partners look at them and they're pregnant again and it's like oh my lord <laughs> yeah I, I don't think we're gonna have an issue there but hopefully not but we'll see that would be another podcast oh man that whole process and i think about you know i hope that i really enjoy being pregnant and Obviously, I don't know. I've only seen people close to me go through that experience and to see what that's going to be like. But I feel like as parents, I'm just excited to see like you as a father. Like I think you have a lot to offer and that's, you know, why I want to raise kids with you. Like you're very thoughtful, you're very logical, you're very kind, and you're also very pragmatic and you're able to help me set boundaries. And I feel like if I had been given more of those skills as a kid, oh, like that would have been excellent. So I, those are things that I want my children to learn from. Okay, here, now I'll compliment you. No, um, because I'm going to get my period in a day or two and I'm already emotional. No, let's see if we can make her cry, guys. Okay. <laughs> you are just a ray of sunshine. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact that I would never want to raise kids without somebody who is able to bring light into my life the way that you have, because I want our kids to have that. And I also understand that I'm a terrible sleeper. You are. And you are a great sleeper. And That might change when I'm a mom. It better not, goddammit, because I'm banking on it. <laughs> no, and, and you have shown me uh, a, a, a way that family can look that I aspire to because I, I think you really prioritize the people in your family and you understand their flaws and you love them selflessly and in every way possible, regardless of any of those things. And you go above and beyond to make them feel loved. And, and that's something that I personally, by no fault of my parents, just didn't learn in the same way. Maybe that was masculinity. Maybe that was my own personal things. It just, it's, it was, it's a very refreshing thing. I never thought about having kids until I met you. And I never then, thought about owning a house until I met you or buying property at all, an apartment. I was like, I don't know, maybe that'll happen, but I should have babies. Wow. I know. That is the, just... The, the, the gender stereotyping, I yeah, know. Yeah, you are I just it's like... Well, that was, again, that's what I was like taught. And then, like you said, no fault of my parents, but society, right? Like those are the things that I was taught to dream and think about and prioritize. Right. And you just needed to find a man 
who could take care of you and make sure that you got lots of money for your babies in your house. You name the kids and I'll name the dog. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I just, you know, it's interesting because on the next episode of the podcast, I'm talking to Destin um, and we're talking all about masculinity. He's a really great podcast called Rethinking Manhood. And as you are reading Boys and Sex right now by Peggy Orenstein, I'm fascinated to see, you know, what you continue to learn about your own masculinity Mm -hmm. and manhood and place in the world. Like, seeing you over the last few years kind of unpack these things and be like, oh, this thing no longer serves me. This doesn't belong to me. This is not of who I am. And to see you really come into your own has been really beautiful to watch. And I think a lot of that, because masculinity and patriarchy, I should say, toxic masculinity and patriarchy in particular, is detrimental to everyone. And especially to men, right? And so Mm -hmm. I just think that we forget that part of the conversation. And so much of it is like, we blame men for this. And I'm like, well, we can't start blaming individual men. We need to understand these power structures that we live within. And so having you contend with that, but in a way that is tangible and I get to see, because I think I get bogged down with like dealing with these larger structural issues and like what the fuck are you supposed to do really well and you're i think the difference that you're seeing there is macro and micro like on Mm. a macro level you can look at society and go wow we're so messed up men are so messed up look at all these statistics around men that are terrible and then there is the individual case of your husband who you're looking at and you get to witness all of those things represented but also my experience trying to navigate those things as well and I, I think that that's such an important thing to remember and reflect on when people are hopeful for things or feeling dread about the future of the world. It's like, okay, yes, there are huge societal things that can stress you out, but there's also mm-hmm. individual cases that can uplift you. And those are the things that you need to prioritize for your own well-being. And mm-hmm. for me as, as a man in society, uh, yeah, like I... I think over the last year or two, I've done more choosing than I think I ever have when it comes Hmm. to who I am as a quote-unquote man. Hmm. I think that I've been given a lot by the nature of the fact that I am a straight-passing, good-looking white dude with confidence and a good head of hair. You know, I fall into a lot of boxes that are favorable. You know, I can throw a football... You know, I can play hockey. You can walk into a store and people aren't going to look twice. You can wear a hoodie with a hood up and no yeah. one's like, hey, like following you through a store. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah. I'm I'm well-spoken. I have all of the gifts that men should have. And I just fell into all the boxes that were there for me because it was convenient, you know. Right. And I know lots of men who have struggled with those boxes in ways that I never have. And, yeah, for, for the first time... I think ever I'm now going, oh, okay. So like what about my presence do I want to continue to adopt and further into Mm. who I am as a person? You know, what does that look like for me? Uh, How does my behavior represent who I am and how does my, you know, actions impact the world around me? And that's something I never really had to think about because 
masculinity just handed me a, a deck of cards. And what was in there is what I just kind of assumed I had. Mm-hmm. And it takes a long, long, long time to learn that you can question them and that you can modify them and change them even in slight ways. And those mm-hmm. small changes do have a really big impact on like your whole friggin' life. The way that you can move through the world and not necessarily have to align with these small boxes that have been put onto us as well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and you can identify with one box and not tick it. Yeah. You can tick that box and not align with it. You know, like there's, uh, there's so much, so much nuance and men in particular, as I'm learning through boys and sex, uh, have just like such an incredibly narrow window of possibilities. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't within that narrow win- window of possibilities, which I am, mm-hmm. uh, you are, you know, gay or you are, you know, labeled something that is very different than You're fetishized or desexualized yeah. or, you know, you're like too feminine, you're too, too whichever. And as soon as you disrupt those or go outside of them, I think I found that fascinating boys and sex are like describing like what's the ideal man mm-hmm. or, you know, like what's the kind of guy that women are interested in. And she interviews people from all across the U.S., from all sorts of different, like, backgrounds, like race, religion, everything else. And their definition is so eerily similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember fighting with that because often the descriptions are, like, athletic, confident, tall, good-looking, good with girls, but doesn't talk too much, is kind of aloof, and is mean and assertive and aggressive. Mm -hmm. And I tick the first five on that list, and the aggressive and sort of uh, mean element, the aloofness, was never something that I was very good at. And I I grew up in a very conservative small town, and so I knew that role. I understood Mm -hmm. that it existed, but like... I just, I was a theater kid. Like, I, I yeah. was in all the school plays and I, you know, was labeled uh, gay for that for most of my childhood. And that was always kind of like the one chip I had on my shoulder was like, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not mean. Mm. And that was such a weird thing that I guess I never really worked at. I guess I could have become mean if I had... Like, if I didn't have all the rest of the masculinity boxes ticked. Or if your parents were the people that they are. Yeah, or if my parents sort of reinforced those gender roles more strictly with me, maybe I would have become mean to cope. You know, perhaps if I had, you know, weight issues that I was self-conscious about, or Mm. I was queer in some way, or, or I had a negative experience from my childhood... What would have been the emotion that I would have clung on to most? Anger. Well, and you are taught as a man, like again, that that is an okay emotion for you to express. Yeah. You can be angry, you can be confident, but you can't be sad, you can't be fearful, you can't be joyful. Mm. Like you are you are given this teaspoon of emotion. And then we you know, tell people who we socialize as women, as females, that we're given a bathtub of things that we can feel. Yeah. But we aren't supposed to attain any power or control, but we can feel all of these feelings. And so there's a trade-off. Like there's, you know, you both get a shit sandwich no matter what. Yeah. 
But the more that we can look at those things, I watched this great TikTok and somebody described their sexuality as being really attracted to soft men and to powerful women. And I was like, <laughs> So like the opposites of what society yes, creates. and like all non-binary people. I was like, that sounds, that sounds like me. Yeah, that just sounds fantastic. Because but you're married to me. You're, you're soft, man. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm kind of like the, the, uh, hardest of the soft men, though. Like, I think in the spectrum of men. You're like a medium firm tofu, kind of. I'm a medium firm tofu of a man. But you're still a tofu. I'm still tofu. You ain't no steak. No, I'm, I'm certainly not steak. <laughs> I hate steak. You're still yummy. Steak is so overrated, just a side note. <laughs> Um, rare, medium, rare, whatever. Just skip me with the steak, okay? Anyway, um, yeah, the, that, that spectrum I think is really important to recognize. And I think that over the years, I have, I've never been a steak. I was no. always a tofu, but I've performed at different levels of that forever. And, uh, you know, like I'm trying to understand, like, you know, is, was, is queerness not a part of my life because it was so stigmatized or mm. do I genuinely not have any queer attraction in my life? And there's this, so there's, there's so much of my tofu firmness level that I don't understand by nature of where I was born and what I was raised with. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, how that would have been different given if I had grown up in a different place or, you know, my parents were different people or, or however it, it, it came to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what a lot of men struggle with is that there's no, there's no exploration. There's no representation. Like I didn't, there was no men who I aspire to. Like, I know that he's the, the guy that everybody is very infatuated with right now, but like Harry Styles is a big deal. Oh, he's he, and I think about, how impactful that would have been when we were younger. Like, we've talked about this, like, how, who we are, I think particularly in terms of idea of gender and sexuality, if we had been teenagers now, mm -hmm. as opposed to in, you know, like, the early 2000s, early 2010s, yeah. like, still so stigmatizing. Like, it was 2005 that same-sex marriage even became legal in Canada, yeah. way later in the U.S. And so I feel like even as someone who knew I was bisexual from a young age, I didn't get to enact that or own really any sense of queerness until much later in my 20s. So even though we're a straight passing couple, I think a lot of what we do is pretty fucking gay. True. I think it's, and oh, Harry Styles. Not, not to the queer community, but to the straight, straight community. And I, I I'm queer. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, yeah. outwardly looking in. True. Yeah. Um, the the Harry Styles thing is interesting because when I the male sort of figures that I immediately pop to mind if I think of like masculinity that I looked at as a kid it was like skateboarding like Fifty Cent Eminem uh you know maybe like the odd athlete like Brad Tony Pitt. Tony Hawk not I wasn't into movies but like mm. you know that that kind of world and I played Halo too like. So violent video games and hyper-masculine violent rappers who were like from ghettos in the United States that I had literally no context for. And then I became aware of like the, what was then sort of considered gay culture, like mm -hmm. whatever gay was, gay was 
out there and it existed, but it was in like a very fringe sort of way. And it was always very uh, hyperbolic. Mm. It was always this like incredibly dramatic, performative, theatrical experience. And that's why I was called gay when I was in high school for being in theater. Yeah. And now I think that Harry Styles and the spectrum of sort of like Lil Nas X. I was and, about to say Lil Nas X. Well, Lil Nas X is a little bit more on the sort of queer end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But like Harry Styles is just a mostly it's just a well-dressed performative man. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, does the dress thing that everybody fixates on. But like, he just kind of represents a different kind of masculinity that um, isn't identifying in any kind of really pronounced way. And mm-hmm. it's just opening the door for people who are, you know, maybe like me or any mil- number of millions of people who are like, ah, I don't really feel like I want to dress up in drag. But I want to represent a little bit more than, like, a lumberjack. You know, I just, <laughs> I want just a little bit more than a flannel is what right. I would like to aspire to. And and I think that that's going to be huge for the next generation of, of men in particular, because that's what we're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, in, in finding that new sense of self when mm-hmm. it's finally being represented. That there are ways that people are celebrated Mm-hmm. Or displaying masculinity Absolutely. being themselves. And also not having it directly tied to their sexuality, right? I've just been like, well, I express myself in this way. And that doesn't necessarily mean my sexual orientation is this or that. But instead, let's have a more nuanced conversation about gender and unpacking bigger ideas of like, well, if I want to paint my nails or if I want to do this, like, I think that's why I'm also excited for us to have kids because I just think the amount of freedoms that they will have that we did not mm. just because it wasn't as socially acceptable. And we come from progressive parents. And even from in that, that won't be the case. And I think reading boys and sex, reading girls and sex, the amount of times, especially around the boys who are talked about the only people that they could be emotionally intimate with who rely on to help them understand their big feelings is women. They can only talk to women about it. Yeah. And I'm excited to change that because I want our children to be able to talk to you about their big feelings as well. And how do they manage them? How do they want to present in the world? How, how do they want to dress? How do they want to speak? Like, you know, to have those more expansive ideas of who they can be in the world. Um, you know, like this is something that you and I, I I'm excited about, right? Because I just want them to be able to have those opportunities that I just I think that's why it made me really sad to watch Heartstopper because I was like, oh, man, the the tenderness, the sweetness that... For anyone who doesn't know Heartstopper, it's a Netflix show. Oh, Let me see if I can summarize. About okay. a young uh, bisexual man coming to terms with his sexuality in a high school context. And he uh, falls in love with a uh, gay boy. Who's, yeah. Yeah. So the who's openly gay? Yeah, and they and they sort of find love, and it's very idyllic. It's it's I mean not without its struggles, right? But just the way that it presents that you know it's not always that people are dealing with homophobia, and they do in the show, and transphobia and other things, and racism and stuff. But it's also just showing that there can be like there can be young queer joy, and I feel like so often when we talk about what it means to fully understand yourself as a queer person, it doesn't happen until later in life, right? And so 
to see that happen. Ah, I don't know. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm like, wow, like that's what's coming out right now. When our kids are old enough to be able to watch things, what's the next thing that's oh, going to be out there? It Maybe it's going to be something that we don't like because, you know, we'll be like the older generation today. And we don't and be understand. Like, There's no, why are, you ta- why are you having sex with robots? I don't understand. Why can't you just have sex with a real person? I mean, that is a thing, too. But that's another... That's a topic for another episode, oh, I God. think. <laughs> I can feel my old man syndrome developing. <laughs> Any final thoughts you want to share, either with me or listeners, about your own understanding, either of your masculinity? I, I'm excited that we talked a lot about masculinity, but about, I don't know, your sexuality. As someone who is on the brink of this newest decade in your life. Hmm. I think that raising children is uh, an opportunity for growth. Mm. And I don't think that enough people go into it with that mindset. I think a lot of people have children for a lot of selfish or just unthinking reasons. Uh, I'm supposed to. This is what's always been done. My parents want them, you know, or things that I don't personally relate to, but I think that the journey of having children for me is about personal growth because I understand that that is something that I will grow from. Um, but also like an opportunity to, I don't know, provide the next generation with the support and love and understanding that, you know, I think our generation missed out on mm-hmm. for the most part. And, uh, and, and you don't get that without a lot of difficulty you know, it's going to be hard. There's going to be, you know, struggles throughout that period. But I mean, what's the point of being alive if you didn't do that? If you didn't put in the effort to like challenge yourself, whether that's kids or otherwise, yeah. like, you know, you, you just have to be constantly pushing yourself to to be more of who you really are, whether that's a uh, slightly less masculine man or, you know, a more, you know, performative one. I don't know. And, uh, and I, uh, I'm excited to bring that sort of learning that I've developed to our kids. I'm excited to learn from our kids too. They're going to teach us a lot. Are you kidding me? Kids are dumb as hell. <laughs> They're <laughs> going to teach us a lot. What do you mean? I'm going to ask my kid, so what do you think of the stock market, Howard? <laughs> We're not naming our kid Howard. I think Howard's a good backup name. Uh, backup. Okay. Well, it's not a prime time. If August so. doesn't work. Howard is a great sub. No. No. This what do you all think? This isn't a put me in coach kind of situation. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe August doesn't like his name and we rename him Howard. What? No. Could we happen. Need to, we need to end this now because we're, we're about to have a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm talking to Destin Land, the host of Rethinking Manhood. Destin and I talk about all things masculinity, sex, and what it means to live authentically. Now, if you have a question, you can send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com, or you can message me on Instagram at dr.leahtidy. You can also learn more about the projects that I'm involved in, what books I recommend, and the amazing folks that I have on the podcast and my website, www.leatidy.com. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.